this entire case is quite remarkable. There were a lot of high expectations. What I found was that it was equally powerful, lacking and problematic. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. Last week, the top court of the United Nations, the International Court of Justice, announced some provisional measures in the case brought by South Africa against Israel under the Genocide Convention. And today we've picked out a few bits to comment on. And there's this enormous slew of what does this mean kind of commentary out there. Uh, We may try and make some reference to some bits and pieces, uh, certainly try and link to some of the blogs and the different interviews I've seen in the show notes. I'm really grateful to all of those hardworking international lawyers out there who are all giving a bit of their life's work to the masses like us. And we are very pleased to be joined today by Nada Kiswanson, a lawyer who has been representing Palestinian human rights organizations and around 700 Palestinian victims at the International Criminal Court. Uh, She has also edited the volume Prolonged Occupation and International Law, published by Brill last year. Hi, Nada. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So, as I say, we've picked a few quotes from the president of the court, that's the American Joan Donoghue, to kind of kick us off, which we can discuss. Then we can see if there are some issues we want to raise. And finally, we're going to look at the current context and what happens next. But first, maybe, Nada, maybe you can tell us what were you looking for in the provisional measures announcement? And did you get it? Well, for many both in Palestine and the broader Middle East region, but I also believe around the world, this case is really the litmus test for deciding whether international justice is still relevant, effective and fair. So what I was looking for in the ICJ order on provisional measures was how close the court would follow its own case law, how well the court would give concrete real meaning to the Genocide Convention, basically how Gazans would actually eventually benefit from the measures ordered and be protected from uh, the crime of genocide if there was a premier fascia case, but also how the court could position itself vis-a-vis other UN bodies and insulate itself from politics. Well, Nada, you didn't expect much, did you? I expected quite a lot, but uh, this is a remarkable moment. And for those of us who have been working on Palestine for many, many years, what we know is that impunity is one of the drivers in Palestine. And this is really an opportunity to bring some form of justice to Palestinians. Okay, well, we'll come back to ask you more in depth about whether it did deliver. I mean, that's a really huge bar that you've set there. So I suspect that we might get to the stage where you say a bit and maybe not in some cases. But Steph, you were actually inside the court, weren't you? What was your expectation from this? Well, my expectation, and I kind of gamed it all out before we had the ruling because I have to kind of prepare for all the scenarios for Reuters. And it pretty much did everything I expected it to do 
but I was very surprised. One of my takeaways from it is that, you know, for the preview, of course, all the news agency mentioned how South Africa demanded an order to stop military action in Gaza. And somehow in the media that morphed into a demand for a ceasefire and all of the attention kind of got diverted to that. So that in the end, a lot of the media attention was on this ceasefire, yes, no. And then when it was a no, it was kind of uh, in some corners painted as a win for Israel, even though you have this wide-ranging opinion supported by a, an overwhelming majority of the court that is basically saying, you know, the top international court essentially said it's possible that Israel could be violating the Genocide Convention, and that's a huge, huge finding. But it seemed to kind of get drowned out in the like, oh, uh, they didn't do a ceasefire. And I saw even Palestinian activists being really disappointed about that outside the ICJ uh, swear. And I understand that people want a ceasefire. It's just, I thought the management of expectations was was kind of wrong. And I also wonder what the media does with, if that's a media thing. And, and I'm very interested to have maybe another podcast about the way media frame mass atrocities and, and, and legal responses to it. Because I also think, you know, what did we as media didn't do right with that? But I was surprised because I thought it was such a kind of monumental decision in a way. I was surprised that it was met with so much disappointment. So that was one of my, my takeaways. Without uh, going down that particular rabbit hole, Nada, of uh, the media framing, does does that resonate with you? What uh, what Steph says there that uh, that somehow people were focused on only one aspect of what might have come out, which which none of us were actually really expecting to come out. As Stephanie said, I think this entire case is quite remarkable. There were a lot of high expectations. What I found was that it was equally powerful, lacking, and problematic. I didn't quite lean any specific way. It left me feeling quite conflicted, but also inspired. I'm looking forward to hearing more from you, Nada, about uh, your specific reactions on specific parts of it. Just to say, from my point of view, I kept on saying to people beforehand, if they come out with provisional measures at all, saying that there is a potential case against Israel, that's the news. That is the biggest news that there could possibly be. So for me, at least, that was that was the big takeaway out of this. Should we um, have a look in detail so that we can hear, hear back from Nada some more of her uh, analysis of this? Why don't you take it away, Steph? Uh, one of the aspects from the ruling that I thought was a big deal was that the court you know, needs to find that Palestinians are a group deserving of protection under the Genocide Convention, which is also something that he sent a snap alert about it, Reuters. And here is the president of the court, Joan Donahue, saying exactly that. The Palestinians appear to constitute a distinct national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, and hence a protected group within the meaning of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. So, Nada, what did you make of that? I found that quite quite powerful. Over the years, what we've heard coming out of Israel is that Palestinians are simply Arabs, Palestine doesn't exist and never existed, and that therefore Palestinians should be absorbed by or moved to neighboring countries. By reaffirming that Palestinians are a distinct group worthy of protection, 
the court is clearly dismissing that claim and I think putting the record straight on who Palestinians actually are. And a big focus all the way through the announcement was on the humanitarian situation. It came back again and again, but here's just one example, a quote from the United Nations Under Secretary General Martin Griffiths back from January the 5th, and here's Judge Donahue quoting him. I quote, Gaza has become a place of death and despair. Families are sleeping in the open as temperatures plummet. Areas where civilians were told to relocate for their safety have come under bombardment. Medical facilities are under relentless attack. A public health disaster is unfolding. Gaza has simply become uninhabitable. Its people are witnessing daily threats to their very existence while the world watches on. End of quote. And it was right about that time that she was saying all these things that I started messaging everybody in my office saying, did we prepare that snap for maybe ordering a halt to military operations and or calling for a ceasefire? Because I began to get not nervous, but they quoted so overwhelmingly on the on the dire humanitarian situation and didn't recall any of kind of what Israel brought in to defend it that you know, as often happens with world court rulings, you think it's going to go one way. And then in the end, it's slightly different. But you start to get nervous halfway through because it seems to be leaning one way quite a bit. So so I thought that was extremely powerful. And, and I'm wondering, Nada, if you, when you listened to that, also kind of felt some support from the court for what is happening in Gaza. Well, I definitely felt as though the judges were recognizing the extent of the human suffering in Gaza. And they vividly transmitted the picture that they had formed to the general public. I think it was necessary to underline the humanitarian situation because the South Africa team had, of course, emphasized this. When South Africa argued that uh, Israel has inflicted conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction of the Palestinian people. But also when they described the situation facing women, especially pregnant women in the Gaza Strip. Another thing I think was really worth noting was the way that the court picked out the specific statements by Israeli officials. This was so important to be able to be used as evidence of the very tough bit of the genocide convention, the special intent, you know, that you need to prove that there may be a potential for genocide by kind of linking it back up to the top officials of the state. And uh, here again is the president of the court quoting the defense minister. On 9 October 2023, Mr. Yoav Gallant, Defense Minister of Israel, announced that he had ordered a complete siege of Gaza City and there, then that there would be no electricity, no food, no fuel, and that everything was closed. On the following day, Minister Gallant stated, speaking to Israeli troops on the Gaza border, I quote, I have released all restraints. You saw what we are fighting against. We are fighting human animals. This is the ISIS of Gaza. This is what we are fighting against. Gaza won't return to what it was before. There will be no Hamas. We will eliminate everything. 
If it doesn't take one day, it will take a week. It will take weeks or even months. We will reach all places. End of quote. What did you think, Nada, about all of these different quotes that they that they pulled out and they seem to rely on in terms of the way that they structured their argument? I found it persuasive. This alleged genocide is being committed in the modern world with everything being recorded and broadcasted live. And so to have these statements before the court, that is something quite extraordinary. And I do believe that the court would be able to use these statements to rely on them to deduce the special intent required under the Genocide Convention. I think what you already mentioned, Janet, that the the quotes are really important to establish that specific genocidal intent. So you're really, really going to need them in the end. And the fact that they didn't seem to uh, take on Israel's, again, defense that this was said in the heat of the moment and it's not really representative was really kind of important. That omission that you don't mention that means that you're not I guess, factoring that in. So I guess they didn't find that very believable. But what was important in this ruling is also that the court made a link about the way Israel's conducting the war, which could show that Palestinians face uh, dangers of a risk or a risk of genocide. In the court's view, the aforementioned facts and circumstances are sufficient to conclude that at least some of the rights claimed by South Africa and for which it is seeking protection are plausible. What I would also like to add is the strength in the South African argument of linking what is being said by Israeli officials with what is actually happening on the ground and how what is being said in Israel is being received and implemented in Gaza. This is quite noteworthy because rarely do we actually have a situation where we can create that connection between military leader call for the complete siege of Gaza City and for the uh, fighting of human animals and then actually witness that translated on the ground live. Yeah, during the hearing, that was a really powerful moment when you had the kind of, I think it's possibly even the Netanyahu himself referring to Amalek which is a very biblical reference and didn't say anything else. And then and then the South African uh, delegation at the hearing showed these videos of Israeli soldiers dancing around, singing about the destruction of Palestinians and linking that to Amalek and what they would do to Gaza. So that kind of blew out of the water, this Israeli argument that that's just a religious uh, quotation and that people who misunderstand what he said, really misunderstand the Bible or don't know their Bible interpretation. It, it showed that, or it, at least it seemed to show, it made a very big, important case of if Netanyahu is saying that the soldiers are in, interpreting it like this, and that is an important factor and not just, you know, when you have words that you say and they get in, interpreted in a certain way, it, it says something about the environment in which these things are said. The other thing that struck me about the connections here was also just the way that the whole announcement of the provisional measures was structured, because based on all of this, the judges then made the connection to why provisional measures are actually needed now. It considers that by their very nature, at least some of the provisional measures sought by South Africa are aimed at preserving 
the plausible rights it asserts on the basis of the Genocide Convention in the present case, namely, the right of the Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts mentioned in Article 3, and the right of South Africa to seek Israel's compliance with the latter's obligations under the Convention. And I just mentioned that because I was getting messages from people saying, why is it all taking so long? Why are they saying all of these different things? And so on. And I thought, you don't understand how a legal case is built up, do you? You don't understand how they need to do A and then B and then C and lead it through in the end to these uh, these different decisions. Because they, they followed that up also themselves by, again, more detail on the humanitarian crisis and ended up with this huge conclusion, which we'll just hear now. The court considers that the catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip is at serious risk of deteriorating further before the court renders its final judgment. What I want to say to you about the way this uh, this ruling was structured is that I actually looked at what the court said in, in the Myanmar Gambia case and in the Russia-Ukraine case. And for myself and my colleagues, I wrote out a script. They're going to talk about this, then they're going to talk about this, then they're going to, you know, and do the points the way these rulings are usually laid out, because it's a very known grid. I had kind of minute by minute what they were going to say, because I could figure out from earlier rulings how the structure is of what the court is going to rule. First, they're going to rule on the existence of a dispute, then they're going to rule on whether on the standing of South Africa, then they're going to say something about the standing of the people, then they're going to do this, then they're going to do that. And then you can kind of go point by point until you could figure out here's where the interesting stuff is going to happen. So again, this was one of those cases where, you know, I also got editors saying, so, so will they, will they give the verdict first and then explain things? It's like, no, that's not how it works. And also, uh, you know, will they just say, except yeah, accept or reject uh, the provisional measures uh, uh, Israel said, and yeah, but they asked for nine, and how does this happen? And so I had written it all out and sent this email around to everybody and still got questions about it, um, probably because they didn't properly read the email. But it, it, a lot of it was very much just the way ICJ does things. But I do think, and I had people who followed the case who aren't lawyers or legally interested, but were kind of interested in this case, who listened to it and got back to me later and said, actually, once I got used to some of the language, I found it quite understandable for regular people to follow. Just um, before we wrap up on the detail of the of the provisional measures, I thought it was also important that the judges also made a reference to what started off this phase of the Israel-Palestine conflict that Hamas and other militants broke out of Gaza on October 7th, killing more than a thousand people and taking several hundred people hostage. The order then states that the court deems it necessary to emphasize that all parties to the conflict in the Gaza Strip are bound by international humanitarian law. It is gravely concerned about the fate of the hostages abducted during the attack in Israel on 7 October 2023 and held since then by Hamas and other armed groups and calls for their immediate and unconditional release. And I think that that was important also for the court to be seen, to be saying something also on that side as such of uh, the conflict. Now, in the end, Nada, what did you actually make of these provisional measures, having set your bar so high as to to what what you were 
hoping for. As far as I was concerned, they basically stuck pretty closely to Israel should obey international law. That was it. Yeah, I think, as I said, I found the order on provisional measures equally powerful, lacking and problematic. If we were to look at what was powerful, indeed, the court did find that there is a prima facie genocide case against Israel. And this is important for two reasons. One, it sends a very clear message that Israel is not untouchable. And it is capable, like any state, of committing a genocide. So with the ICJ decision, the judges opened up here the possibility for accountability, for law to come in and actually trump power. The second aspect that was very important was that it also indicated that states that aid and abet a genocide against the Palestinian people are also not untouchable and in fact puts them on notice on the basis of which then these states would be wise to desist from supplying arms to Israel. So these are the reasons for why I would say this order was important and powerful and meaningful. Now, I did also find it insufficient and problematic. And this really comes down to the judge's decision not to order the suspension of military operations. Although the ICJ ordered Israel to prevent a genocide and provide basic services and humanitarian assistance to Gaza, it's really difficult to see how that can be done without an end to hostilities. What UN agencies and humanitarian organizations have said over and over again is that they can't deliver the aid required for the sustenance of the population if there is uninterrupted bombing and fighting. So this then raises the question, why wouldn't simply the court grant the uh, request for the suspension of military operations as requested by South Africa? And on that, I would like to note that a lot about the response of the international community to Gaza stands in stark contrast to its response to Russia's invasion and occupation of Ukraine. And unfortunately, the same is true when it comes to the ICJ order on provisional measures. In the Ukraine-Russia provisional measures order, the court did order for a suspension of military operations. And this departure, rather than restoring faith in the international justice system, I fear, actually fuels accusations of double standards and also has led to this wider frustration and disappointment that Stephanie was referring to earlier on. I understand the point you're making now, then, if you look at just those both orders, but a lot of ICJ experts think and have told me also that the legal underpinning for those both cases, the Russia-Ukraine genocide case and this case, are very different. There, the argument is that Russia used genocide, saying there was a genocide ongoing in eastern Ukraine, and that's why they needed to invade Ukraine. This kind of is a pretext for the invasion. And therefore, the violation of the genocide convention was inherent in the invasion, kind of, and therefore court ordered it to stop because of the genocide being used as a pretext. This is a possibly genocide happening in the context of an ongoing military offensive, and legally that's a different situation. So 
They also, in, in the Myanmar-Gambia case, which is extremely comparable to Gaza-Israel, they didn't order a cessation of military activities in the Rakhine state where the Rohingyas are, because there are, well, you there are arguments that you could have military operations without large-scale violations of humanitarian law. I don't think that that's what's happening here, but that's the kind of argument you have. So on the face of it, yes, they ordered, of course, they ordered a hold of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, and they didn't order it here. But legally, when you look at the legal reasons why, it's it's very explainable. And I find it kind of, I wonder if it's a kind of a PR mistake by South Africa to request this in a way, because then it gets framed as a binary thing. You either do it yes or no. And one of the things that the South African delegation said also after the ruling is, if you want to do all the things in the provisional measures, Israel really wants to implement that. Basically, that means they have to stop this large-scale military invasion in the way they're doing it now. Are you saying, Steph, that in fact, if you could interpret that what the judges were saying was amounted to saying Israel has to uh, has to to stop fighting in order to do this? I don't think you can say that because then you would also say why didn't they just order that? But if you look at what they are saying should happen for Israel to comply, I don't see how Israel would comply with those provisional measures if it wanted to, and that's also a very large if there. But if you look at Israel and if it were to comply with everything that's in those provisional measures, you can't imagine that the war in Gaza would go on the way it now is because a lot of the things that Israel tried to argue is kind of uh, not violating the Genocide Convention was swept away by the court and said, no, we do think it's plausible that stuff is happening here. So I think you can't look at this and suggest that if Israel wanted to comply with these rulings, that they wouldn't have to fundamentally change what they're doing in Gaza, I think. But I wonder, Nada, what you think. I have a number of things to say about that. As I recall, Gambia did not request a suspension of military operations in the Myanmar-Gambia case. And so that's something that we need to bear in mind. I do believe that most, if not all, of the provisional measures that were requested in that case were actually granted. I appreciate uh, you know, the distinctions that you made there, Nada, on the different cases that we see up at the ICJ. But I want to try and kind of wrap up now with some idea of, of where we are at the moment and what to expect next. Maybe just on a little sidebar, Steph, I understand this week is an incredibly busy week also again at the ICJ. So we are going to see some other decisions, including one on this Ukraine-Russia genocide case that's also coming up this week. Yeah, we're going to have two Ukraine-Russia rulings at the ICJ this week, one about uh, an earlier case that involves the anti-terrorism treaty and the anti-discrimination treaty, uh, which will be a final ruling, but we'll also have a ruling on jurisdiction in the uh, genocide case. So on uh, this Friday, the judges are going to rule if the case of Ukraine versus Russia over this uh, pretext for genocide situation, if that can go forward on jurisdiction. And um, maybe we should look at what kind of comes up next. First off, we should say that under the provisional measures order, Israel actually has to report back to the court in a month. Uh, what does that mean, Steph? 
for us, not so much in the sense that uh, nobody gets to see these reports. Although, of course, we all will all be dying to take a peek at this. When we had the same in Gambia, Myanmar, it's a it's a kind of new thing that the court instills in Gambia, Myanmar. That was a big win for human rights organizations that they actually would have to put on paper what they're doing. I think in Israel, it's kind of, I guess, humiliating for Israel that they're going to have to do that. But also they make a big show of being the most, you know, moral army on earth and they have all these legal advisors. So I'm sure there is already some log of what they say that they are all doing. Um, so I think it's less of an effort for them maybe to show what they're doing. The problem is that we'll never, uh, unless somebody leaks it, we won't be able to see what goes on. And I've never gotten anybody to leak me the Myanmar reports that are allegedly there. So I'm kind of curious what will happen in this case, who all gets to see those reports. And if they don't um, hand them in, what we will notice of that and if, if we will get notice of that from the court. And another element that I think that so we're going to have to keep an eye on that Nada's already mentioned is the extent to which these provisional measures kind of reverberate in national jurisdictions and the idea that they do specifically talk about, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nada, allegations of complicity in genocide and the extent to which that could affect the countries who have been supporting Israel with defence exports. Do you think we're going to need to spend some time looking at all of that in another podcast, Nada, and tease out all of the, you know, what this all means? Yes, absolutely. For the states that have been supplying arms, providing direct support to Israeli operations in Gaza, they can no longer now argue that they don't know whether or not that support is actually contrary to international law. They can no longer argue that they have no indication that that would be the case. The court has made it very clear here that it is very possible that genocide is being committed in the Gaza Strip. And so states have to now listen to what the court has said and change accordingly. I was also noting, I mean, we're recording today, Monday, the 29th of January, and things just keep on moving on, even after a big result at the International Court of Justice. We've had now the suspension of aid to the United Nations body that deals with Palestinian refugees and their multi-generational families. That's UNRWA, who were even quoted within the ICJ ruling. And many Western countries have now suspended their support because I think it's 12 different UNRWA employees out of more than 30,000 of them have been identified by Israel as allegedly having taken part in the October 7th Hamas attack. I have heard suggestions that this might be kind of pulled into the bigger case. How, how would it be that that would actually be pulled in in some way or another into the bigger case? Is it that the suspension of aid could be seen as an element of aiding genocide? One of the arguments I saw floating around legal Twitter about this was that, of course, the provisional measures very uh, much, there's one particular provisional measures which stress that Israel should allow uh, humanitarian aid in and that humanitarian aid should come into Gaza. And so if you 
defund the main organization that is providing this aid, then the argument could be that you are, by defunding this organization, making it impossible for them to give humanitarian aid in contravention to this uh, ruling by the ICJ that you should allow aid in. Now, one of the things that struck me about the Dutch announcement that they would suspend aid to UNRWA is that they said they would suspend aid to UNRWA, but they would continue giving aid and support to the Palestinians through different ways. So maybe that's a kind of legal loophole they found here. And also I have to say that I have some questions about the timing of this extra evidence for UNRWA employees, which you know very conveniently came out the morning of the that you knew there was going to be the ICJ ruling. And I've seen Israel has made this claim a lot of times before that UNRWA employees were involved in October 7, but always apparently declined to give specific evidence. And now all of a sudden they did, and they just happened to do it on the on the day of the ICJ ruling. I think there is some, let's say that I can't escape the nagging suspicion that there is some uh, engineering going on in, in when they release that evidence. And the other element that I saw going on at the moment is some Israeli government ministers, uh, members of the cabinet, not necessarily those who are making all the main decisions about the war, but still members of the cabinet, attending a conference about the resettlement of Gaza or arguing for the resettlement of Gaza, where Gazans would in some way kind of not be there anymore and Israelis could take back over. Again, another suggestion, this could be brought to the ICJ, this is more your area, isn't it, Nada? How would that sort of connect in with the main main case on genocide? I mean, let me start by saying that Israel never stopped occupying the Gaza Strip. Israel has continuously occupied the Gaza Strip since 1967. Now, up until around the 2005s, Israel did have settlers present in the Gaza Strip. They also had military forces there on the ground, and they decided to move them back into Israel proper. What has been suggested now is that they are going to return Israeli citizens to live inside of the Gaza Strip. So rather than moving towards the realization of a Palestinian state, what we're seeing is actually a regression and that is very problematic. The statements that have been coming out of Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, that they will never allow for the creation of the state for Palestine is equally problematic. And it comes within this context, right? And I have to say it also brings out into the open Israel's plan to continue to colonize and settle the entirety of Mandate Palestine. I have to say that uh, tweet, I think, with the new map of Gaza with Israeli names gave me very strong Yugoslav tribunal vibes of the back of a napkin where they divided up uh, Bosnia between Croatia and Serbia. That was quite uh, something that returned in a lot of cases where they were trying to show the genocidal intent of, of main leaders. I was thinking, oh, we're gonna we're gonna see that this back in all kinds of legal cases. 
But if we look forward uh, just a couple of weeks, on Monday, the 19th of February, we'll have other hearings at the ICJ about Palestinians in the advisory opinion, which is very much your super expertise, Nada, because it's going to be about the occupation and what are the consequences and what should Israel do and what should other countries do with what are the obligations of other countries if the court does find that Israel is an occupying power and what are its responsibilities and what are the responsibilities of others. Uh, we did a couple of podcasts on this uh, and we will link to them in the show notes. Nada, can you just remind us now what is the Palestinian request and what should we expect to hear here? Yeah, so on 30 December 2022, the UN General Assembly requested an advisory opinion on the, uh, quote, legal consequences arising from the policies and practices of Israel in the occupied Palestinian territory, end quote. And this advisory opinion was transmitted to the ICJ, noting that 55 years had passed since the onset of the occupation and noting uh, concern for ongoing killings of Palestinians, the displacement of Palestinians, home demolitions, rapid settler transfer, and already then dire humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. In specific, the UN General Assembly requested the ICJ to answer two questions. The first question is, what are the legal consequences arising from the ongoing violation by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination from its prolonged occupation, settlement and annexation of the Palestinian territory occupied since 67, including measures aimed at altering the demographic composition, character and status of the holy city of Jerusalem? And B, how do the policies and practices of Israel affect the legal status of the occupation and what are the legal consequences that arise for all states and the United Nations from this status. And I think what's really important here to note is that the General Assembly is taking it for granted that the Palestinian territory is occupied. That is the starting point. The question here is what happens when an occupation goes on for so long? This is the longest occupation in modern times. And it really puts to the test what the limits are of international humanitarian law, how international humanitarian law is able to adapt to a new reality and a new way of maintaining control over a territory and its people. And uh, it also... I think, is an invitation for the ICJ to look at the way in which the United Nations has been involved and engaged. And as we now know from the South Africa-Israel hearing, the UN is involved in Palestine in very many different ways. It's been quite consistent in its characterization of the conflict, but it hasn't been able to bring about a change. So now the ICJ, I think, has an opportunity to actually bring some light on what it could do, what measures it could take, and how it needs to place itself and deal with the Palestinian people, the state of Palestine and Israel. 
I think we're going to probably use one of your quotes there to uh, to introduce this as we uh, as we get into it because it really helps us understand the you know the breadth of the questions that they have to answer there about uh, what happens under this kind of situation in international humanitarian law. Maybe just to round off this podcast, I'm probably trying to squeeze too much in as usual. But do you have any thoughts? Nada, uh, because of your work at the other court in The Hague, the International Criminal Court, as to how what is going on at the ICJ may also connect up with the investigation into the situation in Palestine at the ICC? Well, genocide isn't only a crime under the Genocide Convention. It is a crime under the Rome Statute. And the prosecutor needs to look at all of the potential crimes in relation to the Palestine situation as part of the investigation on the situation in Palestine. It will be impossible for the court to ignore a decision by the ICJ on genocide for this for this very particular reason. But also I think it's really interesting to see how the ICC in effect has being overshadowed by the ICJ. So ICJ is a court that actually was seen as a conservative court dealing with tedious issues relating to the sea or very specific limited land disputes. And suddenly they're having to address the subject matter of genocide, which which it has rarely done before. And I think many assumed was part of the ICC's forte. And so it's a very interesting, I think, development of how international, how one can make the most out of the various institutions that are actually there and how they complement each other and eventually undoubtedly also impact each other. Thanks, Nada, for making some of the connections there. When I first asked you to to join the podcast and we were thinking about how to to put this together, we had been thinking about how the South Africans had put their case and what was especially good, you know, what you would want to pull out from that. I know we've got right to the end of the podcast and we're right now on provisional measures, but maybe as that kind of typical question that we often ask at the end, is there anything else that you want to say? Maybe you wanted to say a few words about what you thought of the South African case in general. Yes, I would like to say something about that. I've worked on the broader Middle East region now for the better part of 15 years. And I like to think that I keep my ear to the ground. And what I can say is that the live broadcasting of the South African team's submissions were very emotionally received in the region. This was one of the rare times where the plight of the Palestinian people is being told to the entire world without interruption, where we get to hear in detail exactly what is happening to them and also where we get a sense of who they are. And I certainly had the impression that the South Africa team managed to do this 
in the most extraordinary of ways. They folded in the real life experiences of Palestinians and portrayed a very daunting and genuine look into the horror that is unfolding in the Gaza Strip. What I found particularly interesting was actually the opening remarks of the South African ambassador. He did not hesitate to frame this application within the context of the occupation. He mentioned apartheid on both sides of the green light, and he even spoke about the Nakba. Now, for Palestinians, that was quite an emotional statement to make. Israel has anti-Nakba legislation in place aimed at restricting the commemoration and recognition of the Nakba within Israel. And the Nakba has become something that one is afraid to remember, something that people shy away from shedding the light on. And the South African ambassador said the word Nakba in the halls of the Peace Palace. That is unprecedented. I would like to congratulate the South Africa team for doing an amazing job at actually bringing forward a human and full side of the picture. We've actually um, mentioned the Nakba in previous podcasts, but just to make sure that everybody knows what it is, it's the Palestinian description of what happened with the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948 and the way that Palestinians were forced to leave uh, their villages and homes and very many of them became refugees. Thank you so much, Nada, for showing that extra dimension that I hadn't picked up on because I didn't really know about Israel kind of anti-Nakba legislation. So that was really, really enlightening why that uh, elicited so much emotion. Another question that we always ask at the end of the podcast is what are you reading, listening to, watching, maybe connected to your work, maybe not, uh, that you would recommend? I am very much consumed with what is happening not only in Palestine, but in the Middle East region, because of course, what is unfolding now in Palestine is having a huge impact on the neighboring countries and is resulting in an immense level of insecurity, but also, albeit in a limited form, death and destruction. So I do not, unfortunately, spend a lot of time on uh, fun, relaxing things. The book that I would recommend people to read, which is actually related to (laughs) the topic that we've been discussing today, is Minor Details. It's a novel about the situation in, in Palestine and Israel. It was awarded a German prize. And unfortunately, there's a lot of controversy surrounding just that because of the timing of the award ceremony and 7 October, which I think adds to the, uh, you know, makes it an even more interesting read. Great. Thank you. I remember the controversy around it. I'll now try and look up and uh, get uh, get hold of the book. Thank you so much, uh, Nada, for helping us sort of dissect the different things that were said in the court and not 
said in the court. And uh, as Steph just said, making all the connections for us, we appreciate you making the time. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.